Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome to this episode, where I met with Mike Winterfield, the founder and CEO of Active Impact Investments. Mike has received a number of accolades, including being a top 40 under 40 recipient, as well as having grown and led some pretty big successes in the startup space. He's now blazing a new trail in the world of finance. What's remarkable is that his career is primarily focused on building purpose-driven companies. This is partially what led him to start Active Impact Investments, a fund focused on purpose-driven companies. The thesis of the fund is to invest in companies that have a clear stated mission to tackle some of the most challenging social and environmental problems we're facing. The thing is, this is not a charity by any means. Along with a purpose that goes beyond just profit, his fund is looking to make outsized returns the same way a typical venture capital fund would. What occurred to me in our conversation is that this may very well be the trend for the future. From high net worth investors looking to have more meaningful investments to companies using a greater purpose as a competitive advantage. Mike and his team are onto something really interesting. This is a different perspective. I'm sure you'll enjoy. I'm on the line with Mike Winterfield of Active Impact Investments. Uh, Mike, really nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, excellent. It's um, it's an interesting path you've taken. Uh, you definitely have some accolades in your career, from uh, small early stage companies up to running some some big private or public companies, as I understand, and now Active Impact Investments. Uh, can you give us a bit of background, uh, an elevator pitch on yourself? Sure. So, uh, I guess I started with corporate background, but always with super entrepreneurial companies. So. Um, generally not that big you know, companies with um, sort of a, a range between um, 30 to, to, to a few hundred employees um, and really entered in from a sales standpoint and doing uh, B2B sales and, and, and love that. Um, but, but actually did it in a, in a model where when I started off, it was actually a hundred percent commission. And so what appealed to me of that was sort of, building a business within a business and like I said, through that entrepreneurial mindset. And then, um, and then I had the opportunity to kind of move up through that organization and get experience with a bunch of different things. And between that organization and a few other organizations, um, you know, got a chance to be venture backed at one point by KKR, KKR and TorQuest, got an opportunity to do some M&A work, had an opportunity to be turnaround guy for, for a while and sort of kind of going into underperforming um, divisions and, and regions. Um, got to do some geographic expansions, moving into other cities and other countries with product lines, um, and then got an opportunity to do some product launches, so commercializing IP from software services and, and, and moving them over to, to be um, uh, sort of more traditional SaaS um, subscription software. 
so it was a ton of fun. I mean, I, I, I just, I consider myself lucky to have had the opportunity to dabble in a number of different industries and a number of different roles and, um, and to experience some of these sort of projects and events that small companies um, typically go through as they're trying to grow and scale. Um, and that was a little bit kind of what brought me to doing what I'm doing today was just, you know, trying to harness these things that I really had built some experience doing that I really loved doing, but where I thought there was actually a need in the market to support um, small businesses, startups that um, couldn't really afford having someone on their senior leadership team that had necessarily been through these things before. So, so that brings us into active impact and, and your investment fund there and what you're, you're focused on there. Can you, can you give us a high level of what active impact does? Yeah. So uh, (laughs) it used to be a 45 minute description of what we do. And it's now moved to uh, we're a, we're a small, uh, impact venture capital fund. So I can say it in one sentence now. Um, yeah, the reason the description was longer before is just, I, I think the reasons behind why I was doing it and, and, uh, and, and what I believe to be sort of our unique approach to doing it. But, um, yeah, we, um, so I'm the, uh, I founded that uh, organization, Active Impact, uh, about two years ago. Um, in those two years, we, we got up and running, and we, we now have $10 million in, in assets under management. Um, and that's spread across um, across 50 uh, investors, all accredited investors. And um, and yeah, what, what our mandate is, is to, to invest that money in um, uh, the 15 uh, startups that are, you know, early stage revenue, um, but also as our very literal name implies, um, they are all uh, impact, what we believe to be sort of impact organizations. And, and, um, and when I say impact, I mean companies that we believe through the course of their, uh, their, their business and their revenue generation are solving an important social or environmental issue. Um, and then the other very literal part of our name on the active side is that um, both myself and a number of our investors took a keen interest in getting operationally involved in supporting our portfolio companies. And so uh, we were lucky enough to attract investors that had backgrounds that complemented mine, people who had been head of sales, head of finance, head of technology, um, head of marketing in other successful sort of small and medium size uh, private companies and um, and just saw this as a way to sort of um, get involved with their money, you know, instead of mailing off the check to the financial advisor once a year and making your RSP contributions or whatever you do, and then just receiving your annual report on your, on your earnings. Um, this was an opportunity for people to invest very much in issues that they cared about, get involved in the startup community, paying attention to you know, interesting innovations that are happening here in Canada um, and to hopefully, you know, influence uh, the success of their investment. You know, the, 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 there was that great alignment um, aspect that if, they, if our investors could leverage their network and leverage their expertise to help our portfolio companies, then more of them would succeed and, and, 
and the ones that succeed would grow faster than than is typical in the market. So that's the that's uh, the medium length version of the story of what we're doing now. All right. <laughs> when I look at that, it, it's an interesting combination there of of investing in companies which have a uh, perhaps a, a, a capitalist conscious to them, and then also involving accredited investors, high net worth individuals to, to participate in those. There, when I notice this, I mean, I definitely understand and see that there's a, a great purpose here. But when you look at purpose-driven funds, uh, they're definitely in the minority. How big of a market is there for investors who are looking to invest in, in more socially conscious uh, businesses? Well, so, so luckily, it's, it's growing really quickly. Um, so so I, I tend to kind of scrape a bunch of data and reports that are getting posted on this on a daily basis, and, and, I, and I send it out via LinkedIn and, and you know, a few other channels, Twitter and so on. And, and what I keep seeing reinforced is that it's actually the fastest growing financial category, fastest growing investment category. Um, so there's a bunch of stats about sort of um, the big transfer of wealth that's happening from sort of the baby boomer generation. And, you know, first of all, unfortunately, pass from the men to the women because the, the men tend to die a little earlier and the women tend to be a little more socially conscious. And, and then it will pass from, from the women, from the moms to the kids. And then that, that sort of drops onto this millennial generation. And, and millennial generation, there's this massive jump in interest in social and environmental uh, issues. Um, so we're seeing it grow from that standpoint, just from uh, a demographic standpoint and, and um, where the money is either flowing intergenerational or, or the fact that millennials are starting to kind of burn into their own uh, money. And then, um, and then we're seeing also, I would say some of the skepticism of the traditional capitalists starting to decline which is nice to see where where this was a sort of a nascent category and um, there wasn't a lot of data and then you start to see more and more funds performing well that have this combination of financial returns and social or environmental um, benefit and so when people start to realize that there's not a trade-off in making that decision then I think you kind of have to ask yourself, why, why not? You know, why wouldn't you invest in, in that category if there isn't a trade-off? Yeah, I see what you're saying there. There's a uh, a benefit to your investment along with a potential return. It begs the question, though: Is there are socially conscious companies uh, comparable and competitive when it comes to venture state or venture class investments with the uh, potential returns, the IRRs, and so on? I mean, are they are they in the same class or do they get treated treated special? Well, I, I mean, I believe they're just like any other company. They're, they're not inherently better or inherently worse. It's, you know, first you set your intention in terms of, you know, what your product or service or, you know, impact or mission, your why, you know, if you're following the Simon Sinek kind of world um, of, of what you're going to do. And then you're either a well-run company or a poorly run company, and you either have a great leadership team or a poor leadership team. Or you, you know, so I, you know, I just I kind of like to lead people down that path a little bit and say, hey, listen, you know, do you believe there are companies out there that are 
you know, doing good and companies out there that are doing harm and everybody would agree, yeah, there are. And say, okay, and do you believe there are companies out there that are, you know, run well and will make lots of money and companies out there that are run poorly and will probably go to business? Yes, I agree. Well, we're just interested in that one quadrant where all of these things align, where they have the opportunity to produce venture grade returns and are capable of large scale. Um, and uh, and at the same time, um, uh, create a positive impact. So gives us a little bit of a smaller pool to draw from. That's um, that that is uh, that's true. That's fact. Um, but it's not that there aren't enough of these to choose from. I mean, we we've, we've seen over four hundred startups in the last year that uh, fit into into this category, and of that, we you know so far we've selected the top four. So. You know, it's it's yeah. it's interesting to think that perhaps you got a smaller pool of companies who have a, a defined um, uh, purpose there, uh, a larger purpose. But I would imagine these companies probably have a a better opportunity to attract qualified talent because there's yeah. a you know there's something there beyond just creating a, a great piece of software. Well, well absolutely, and 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 so this. Is- the statistics which would support what you just said, and, I, and I've lived it personally. I mean, I, I worked at um, worked at a, a software services company called Traction on Demand. Um, they were a certified E Corp. They really kind of lived to their mission and their values, and um, and they worked in a hyper competitive space, trying to attract top technical talent. And um, and you know they're a private company, so I can't you know I can't say what their profitability is, but I, but I, I would say that they grew faster than any of their competitors, and they were um, more profitable than any of their competitors. And so you know this this you know focus on doing the right thing for employees, doing the right thing for customers, doing the right thing in the community, um, and not making short term decisions around profit can can actually lead to higher levels of profitability. And you know, very specific to your point, how that plays itself out on the um, employee side, I think is, look, employee attraction is expensive unless you have a good employment brand. Well, these companies do have a great employment brand, and this is where millennials want to work, which is where a lot of the up-and-coming talent is. Um, employee, you know, training and engagement is expensive if you don't have a great place to work. And of course, retention is expensive. Um, you know, the cost of uh, rehire and, and and so on. So, if you can have that dialed in, then then you're right. There's actually um, there is an economic benefit that you could sell to any you know pure capitalist that is you know bottom line oriented, even though you're you're leading with you know a social or environmental impact. And I would take the employee bucket. And then I would move that over to the customer side. And I would say, what do customers want to buy right now? And customers are voting with their wallet. And um, and so how do you have more loyal customers or how do you differentiate yourself? And in many cases, if your product or service addresses this need, then you've got a huge growing population that wants to consume from companies that have this sort of thought and leadership. Um, and then interestingly, moving over to a third bucket, You've got um, the investor pool, and so so when you think of it that way, that boy, if I had some of these considerations in mind, if I was, you know, if if I if I could, you know, create an offering that 
uh, was economically viable and solved an important social and environmental issue. And that would get me the best talent from an employee standpoint. And that would attract a unique and larger customer base. And that would allow money to flow into my company from an investment standpoint. Um, those are three pretty compelling reasons to, to, to kind of consider going this way. You know, when you, when you talk it out, it makes sense. And I mean, when you talk about the statistics of money moving into more purpose-driven funds and, and attracting millennials who have the biggest interest and, and some of the, the, the fastest growing earning power and so on, I mean, it all makes sense. Do you find, though, that there is a, is there still a stigma around this? And perhaps it's not a stigma like, you know, something in the forms of a stigma for mental illness, but, a, but a, maybe an ego stigma from the, the financial community when it comes to investing in, in, well, one, your fund, and two, in purpose-driven companies? Um, there is, there is, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I have a guess in terms of where that comes from and where it comes from is, you know, when I, when I was a kid, if I saw some sort of issue or, or cause that, that I really related to and I wanted to do something that kind of chip in, be a part of the solution, pretty much anybody would have told me, okay, Mike, you've got two things you can do. You can donate money or you can volunteer. And so, you know, for, for a few generations, we were really reliant on um, sort of not-for-profit entities uh, and government entities trying to run around and, and, and deal with a bunch of these issues. And then this, this kind of concept of, of um, you know, social ventures and conscious capitalism and, and impact investing started to sort of come around. Um, and you had some of the, you know, like, the great strategist, the you know Michael Porter from from, uh, from Harvard, in talking about sort of the ability to to leverage uh, capitalism and and basically you know bake these things into the DNA of of, uh, of a for profit entity. And so what you have right now, and 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 some good reason for skepticism is you do have some of the the old players that have kind of dusted off. Uh, you know, a not-for-profit, or, you know, a volunteer-based organization, and they've they've put a banner on it and tried to make it look like a for-profit. And some of those are they're not good companies. Um, so so the problem with impact is that it all gets painted with the same brush. And so there are people out there that are okay with you know sort of what they call concessionary return impact products, and so. You know, there are people out there investing because they care so much about the impact, um, but they actually don't care that much about financial returns. And then there's other people who are out there investing in things that uh, are sort of, you know, market rate returns. Um, and then there's other people that are investing in things where they're looking for venture returns. So I think the most important question is really um, when you are looking to invest in impact, what are you looking for in terms of return? And then is the, you know, if you're making direct investments, is the founder of that company, like, is, is that what their interest is? Do they have, you know, lofty ambitions around, you know, economic returns and scale and, and, and are they putting together sort of a, a world-class business? Um, or, or does this kind of smell more like a charity? And so, um, 
yeah, anyways, I, I'll, you know, I'll probably leave it at that, but I would just say, again, just like any category, um, you have good, you know, good opportunities and bad opportunities. Um, but what exists within the impact world is, is three different categories. And, and, you know, one of the categories is one that is accepting of lower terms. And so you just need to know what you're buying. I, I hear you there. Yeah. And for clarity, what side of the, that spectrum does uh, active sit on active impact? Yeah. So we, <laughs> um, funny enough, it was, it was, it was a debate amongst our team where we, where we should fall and how we, we create the most impact. Um, but we did ultimately land on the fact that we wanted venture grade returns. We wanted above market returns. We wanted risk adjusted rates of returns, whatever you want to call it. But basically yep. we're trying to create the highest economic return that we can alongside the highest impact that we can. So, so that brings me into the next question then, because that would help frame up the kind of businesses you're looking at. And uh, what, what are the parameters of your investments? What, what kind of companies do you look at? Um, well, so uh, I'll start, like, I guess I'll start with impact rate because that's the that's sort of the, the binary one. Like people very quickly get sort of you know qualified in or qualified out whether we believe in their impact. So on the impact side, you know, my partner and I are probably most passionate about environmental, um, you know. Uh, environmental impact. So companies are doing things to reduce the, the, um, the effects of climate change or that are doing things from a sustainability standpoint or regeneration standpoint or conservation standpoint. Or, um, and, and then if we're not doing something on that side of the equation, then on the social side, everybody has a different definition of, you know, what, what are the pressing social issues of our time or what are the ones that move you or, you know, what, what qualifies. Um, you know, our biggest test there is just, is it something that can benefit the many versus the few, right? Like we see something come in front of us where people would say, hey, this is a, you know, it's a social venture and, and you know, we do this thing to, you know, improve, you know, quality of life or extend, you know, extend life or what have you. And then you look at the ticket uh, size and you say, okay, but this is only available for the top 1% in the world. And so if we were going to qualify it in, we would look for something that's removing, you know, access, uh, removing barriers to access or, you know, creating, you know, just creating more inclusiveness, doing something that addresses the needs of, of uh, you know, more of the population and creates more of a level playing field. Um, so we, we like innovations in that. So anyways, after you've qualified in that we believe that your company can solve one of these issues, then I would say we, we probably move to doing what most uh, venture capital funds do and just, you know, we get into a very deep due diligence of um, which ones do we think have, you know, the most to gain and have the fewer risks and have exceptional leadership teams and have great market timing and, and uh, have a great, you know, have a great idea. Um, and specifically what we invest in, is companies that are early stage revenue. Usually they're doing kind of the first couple hundred thousand, a couple couple million in revenue. And um, we have focused on companies that have uh, either a, a software or a high growth services business model, just because that was 
that was my whole operational uh, and leadership background. So at least we would know their company that um, I have a, more of an ability to kind of screen who I think the winners would be and companies that after we invest, I know that um, I can use some of my, my past work experience to try to help them out. And then with those, what's the, I mean, from those parameters, what's kind of the bite size? How much, um, for a company who is approaching you, what kind of uh, ask should they come with? Mm. Yeah, so our first check is uh, is typically going to be about a quarter of a million dollars. And then we we keep um, a big chunk of the fund in reserve for follow-on investments. And so, you know, that first quarter of a million uh, investment that we'll make, we're usually participating in in a in a, a seed round. Uh, it could be pre-seed, it could be Series A, but typically a seed round where the whole round is around a million dollars. So we're kind of taking you know a, a quarter of that round, and we're going in as a syndicate with a number of other investors. And um, and then what we hope to see happen is that we we work with that organization. They experience you know tremendous success and growth, and then you know at some point within the next you know nine to eighteen months that they're actually going out and doing another round of financing, moving on to a Series A or a Series B, where the valuation of the company has increased um, uh, hopefully um, uh, dramatically. And that for the ones that we really believe are going to be winners and where we really believe in who is coming in and taking a lead position in that next investment, um, that we would exercise our pro rata rights and we would come in with, with more money to maintain our percentage ownership. And so, you know, you know we might take, uh, you know, a 750 or, or a million dollar position in, in a company after, after kind of tracking them. Um, for, for a period of time. So you made a point there about the ones that you really see, the re, that you really believe in. Aside from the typical, you know, they're they're hitting their, you know, they've generated revenue, they're profitable, maybe they've got a, you know, few other of the typical check marks. What do you look for? What 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 tells you? You know what? I think this is a winner. Um, before we invest, or after we've invested. It could be before or after. And in this case, uh, I was referencing uh, when you're looking at doing a follow-on round and you've worked with that company for some time, what, mm-hmm. what is it that, that gives you that, uh, that insight to say, yes, uh, this is worth uh, another round? Yeah, so um, look, before, we, before we've invested, we, we skew very heavily on our screening to, to teams. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of really interesting research out there. There's a, there's a TED talk by, by a guy by the name of Bill Gross that kind of that talks about you know how um, many investors have, have sort of underprioritized the, the importance of the team and, and and sort of what happens in the startup ecosystem being that you know there's going to be a lot of pivots. There's going to be you know changes in business models and changes in pricing and 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 you know even changes in the customer segment that you go after. Um, but you really have to kind of have yourself attached to the right, uh, you know, bet, bet on the right, bet on the right horse, so to speak. And so, you know, we go really, really deep in, uh, in founder screenings and, and look for people who we think 
you know, have the, have the traits for success, have the, the tenacity and the grit and the intelligence and the accountability and, and, and the ability to, to get lots of other people. So what we're really looking for before we invest is, you know, do we think these people can execute? And then after we've invested, we get a chance to watch them execute. And so I would say, you know, as we make a decision to put more money into a company, I mean, for one, you've got a bit of a stack ranking thing that's happening. So we've invested in 15, we will, and the fund will invest in 15 companies. And, um, you, you know, what a lot of kind of portfolios will do is they'll, they'll really stack up on the top, you know, two, three, four, five of those. And so, you know, if, if you're picking the top five, then, you know, you've had an opportunity to look comparatively at 15, you're just giving the top five more money. And what we're looking at is, is execution, right? Like, you know, what were they forecasting? What actually happened? Are the things that they said they were going to do, did they do them? Are the things that they thought would happen happening? Um, and, um, and, and, well, yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I, I could name off a zillion different metrics, but, um, probably be pretty, pretty boring for your, for your listeners. So I'll, I'll stick with that. I mean, I think it, it really kind of has to do with, um, as we're working with them and, and as they have to handle and tackle the daily challenges that, that come to, you know, especially small businesses, how are they handling those, uh, those, those times of adversity? And, and when it comes to kind of setting an intention and a plan in place of where they want to go and how they want to get there, then how, how effective have they been at doing that? You make good points there. And, and it's something that I, I hear time and time again. I mean, this is for public companies as well, is setting those points, saying, here's what we see, here's what we're going to do, and then actually coming back to report on them and showing the progress. And if you don't hit that progress, explaining why and explaining what you learned. I hear it time and time again of how important that is. Uh, and then the other thing, and I mean, you know, perhaps it's, it's almost table stakes, but it's when you talk about the team, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible how powerful it is, especially in very, very heated markets, something like the cannabis space. Uh, you know, damn near everybody can come up with a new idea of how to use cannabis, but the ones that are getting the big bets in, in, uh, in investment are those who have a solid team who've you know, been, they've been in the trenches before and, and more importantly, been in the trenches before together. Mm-hmm. So from that and, and understanding some of the deal terms and, and the bite size you do, something else that I find interesting about Active Impact is the, uh, the incorporation or the the funding as well of B Corps. And, and, you know, I'll be, I'll lay my, my relative ignorance on the table here. I'm not, uh, I'm not well versed on B Corps and how they receive investment. And is if is it different? What is that whole world about? Yeah. So we, um, we are certified B Corp. And, and so the certification is done by this independent third party called uh, B Lab. And, uh, and, and a couple of our portfolio companies are B Corps and, and we, we would love it if all of them, you know, make the decision to become B Corps. So we don't, um, we don't mandate that. So, um, the best way I could describe B Corp is it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a third party, um, scoring system and, and validation of that scoring system, similar to like, um, you know, 
uh, you know, a compliance one like ISO uh, or um, on the ethical side, like, you know, an ocean wise or, uh, or a fair trade or what have you. But, you know, instead of being related specifically to the manufacturing industry or the, you know, the coffee industry or the clothing industry or whatever, uh, or, the, or, the, or the seafood industry, um, they came up with something that they felt would be universal and could be used for any company, any industry, any size, any geography. And I think that's what was so compelling about it. And so, you know, you now have, I, I think the number is 70,000 companies have now taken the, the B Corp Quick Impact Assessment, which is a, just a free tool if you, you want to kind of see how you stack up against other companies that are paying attention to these things. Um, but what B Corp is, is just, it's, um, their way of thinking is how to use business as a force for good. And, uh, and, and that just, you know, that really resonated with me. Um, and so what I would say it is in, in practice, once you decide to take that step for your company is it's just, it's a way to bake your values into your, the DNA of the organization. So that it doesn't just sit with kind of one leader or sit with the CS, CSR department. Um, that, that it, it's actually sort of encoded into your business. And so it's kind of just good governance for being aware of your, your total footprint, if you will. How do you treat employees? How do you treat customers? Um, how do you contribute to the community? What impact do you have on the environment? So just kind of being aware and you don't, you don't have to be perfect. Um, you just have to, you know, be, be better than. <laughs> be better than where the average is. And do you have any examples or stories of, of perhaps very well-known companies that perhaps people don't know of E-Corps? Um, well, you know, so I'm in Vancouver and so, you know, the, the big names in, in BC are uh, Pat, Patagonia and, and uh, Hootsuite and Traction on Demand. Um, a lot of people know um, Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform, they're a B-Corp. Um, so yeah, there, there's, um, there's a few quite large brands that have, uh, have adopted this. There is a challenge for the really large brands is a challenge for publicly traded companies because of, um, uh, well, what, what is stated to shareholders is that we will focus first on maximizing profits. And, uh, there's a bunch of research that's actually shown that that, is probably broken and probably leads to lower profits. Uh, but it's difficult to change in sort of the, the legal uh, requirements um, that have been committed to shareholders. So it's, it's, it's really hard to change after the fact for publicly traded companies. And I think what B Corp is fine. So in that case, if, if um, I'm trying to think through this here, because I, I was under the understanding that a B Corp, and perhaps this is only in the United States, it, it is regulated or uh, it's under a different um, set of rules to where the, the obligation to shareholders is different than if it was just a regular corporation. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 no, you, you, you bring up a great point and, and there's a, there is confusion on this generally in the marketplace. So there is the B Corp certification and then there is also a uh, B corporation uh, in terms of how you have registered your company. 
Um, so like, you, you know, you can, you can register as a, um, as a benefit corporation. Um, and so, yeah, that's a designation that exists in, in either every state in the U S right now, or almost every state. I'm, I, I haven't totally kept track. And it has been, uh, legislation that is moving into other, uh, territories. So there's, there, there's actually, um, uh, legislation being proposed right now in the province of British Columbia, for instance, to bring that into place. So to your point before, you know, does that change anything about sort of the structure of your company or how you can receive financing? The answer is no. If the, the sort of the, um, it, it, it doesn't, um, it, it mimics very much what, what a typical registered uh, corporation would look like with, uh, you know, save for a, a couple of lines of, of description of, of how, how the organization will uh, behave. So yeah, so there, there's, there is a legal way to incorporate your company and then there is, which is available in some jurisdictions and some not. And then there is the certification and you can have one or the other, uh, or both. So it's, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, one, uh, requires the other and, and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the clarity on that. I mean, it's, um, I think it's an interesting world and it definitely has uh, a lot of benefit. Uh, excuse the pun. <laughs> um, so in changing direction a little bit from, uh, what you're doing there with active impact and perhaps more to the, to the insights from your, your job as a fund manager, what should, what should founders and CEOs know about your job specifically? You know, and one thing I say often is that uh, investment funds, they often live and die off of good deal flow as, as one example. But what are other things people should know about your job as a fund manager? Um, specific to, to companies perhaps that are applying for, for funding with us or, or investors or... Well, I think in this case, yeah, with the companies looking to speak to you, let's let's tailor it down that path because I think that's uh, that would be most uh, beneficial. Yeah, so I, I think the the mistake I see made most often from companies is uh, or founders of companies that are seeking uh, funding is is that they they try to talk investors into um their investment and you know the the big piece of advice i I would give them is that it's not a good use of time i think the 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 best thing you could do as a founder of a company is to very quickly sort of qualify any investor any fund manager um but but essentially kind of get a sense of what fits in their box and what doesn't and so you know, as I described to you that, you know, we look for high growth services companies. We look for impact companies. We look for companies that are doing between 200,000 and 2 million in revenue. We only invest in companies that are headquartered in Canada or the U.S. Uh, we have a preference for ones that are, that are headquartered in Canada. So you could ask me four questions and you could, you could get to that sort of investment thesis of us. And in fact, um, if it's not sort of front and center on our website, then, then shame on me, but typically funds will will be pretty clear on what fits in the box, you know, front page of the website as well. Um, and so what's kind of curious to me is that 
I go to tons of events and, and when you're the person with the money, then <laughs> you're a popular guy in the room sometimes. And, um, and founders will come up and they'll talk to you and they spend a lot of time explaining their idea. Um, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, uh, what have you. And, um, and sometimes I think that can be, that can be inappropriate because, you know, t- typically investors kind of get the gist of the idea. Um, not all the nuances uh, understood, but at least the gist of the idea enough to know that it's something they would want to know more about or, or not within a sentence or two. And then, um, the example I was going to give about people trying to kind of talk you into thinking about something outside of, of your, your box. Um, and why I think that's such a, a terrible use of time. Um, I was standing in a, I was standing in a lineup at the, uh, the SoCap conference in San Francisco. The guy approached me, tells me a little bit about his business. Uh, and I, uh, you know, quickly learned that they were pre-revenue. And I explained to him that our fund is not investing companies that are pre-revenue. I said, Hey, listen, I, you know, really wish the best for you. And it sounds really awesome what you're doing. So if you want to get in touch with us after you're generating some revenue, then, then, you know, be happy to take your call. And, um, and he kind of pressed on. He said, well, you know, here's why you really might want to think about us, you know, pre, pre-revenue, even though you don't use invest pre-revenue and why we're different and so on. And, you know, I didn't take the time to explain it to him, but, but, uh, the reason why if he understood what happens in, in my seat that he wouldn't waste his time doing that is when fund managers raise money, they raise money from people under a particular, you know, pretense of what they're going to do with it. And so we have 50 investors in our fund and I told them what I was going to invest in. And so I can't just meet a guy at a conference and hit it off and decide, you know, I guess I'll call all 50 of my investors and I'll let them know that I think that we should um, invest pre-revenue in this case, even though that wasn't the thesis of the fund. Um, so, so I like, and, and I think it would be kind of comical if, if that, you know, that individual, um, knew that that was what would have to happen in my world, right? And, and, and would probably understand that it's not a good use of his time to ask yeah. us to invest yeah. outside of the thesis. I, I really think, you know, that's an example of, of a really important point that CEOs and founders need to, to keep in mind that when they're approaching money, there's, there's set parameters that fund managers work with it. They set their thesis and, and you can't just bend it on a whim and be like, oh, geez, you know, that is really cool. I'm going to stroke you a check right here. I mean, it does work that way, right? Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, it's, uh, I suppose I could, I could rant about that, but it's, it's always better hearing it from somebody in, the, uh, in your seat. So that's fantastic. Uh, any, any other thoughts around there you wanted to share before we move on? Um, you know, I... I I would say um, I would encourage more founders to check in earlier, though, with funds. Um, so let's say they do tick all the other boxes except for timing stage. So you know they're in the right industry, they're in the right geography, they're you know they're whatever other uh, criteria a fund might use. If they tick all those boxes, the only thought box they don't tick is that. You know, they're at a million in revenue and the fund that they're talking to likes to invest at two million in revenue. Um, I, I would prefer if someone like that approaches us and just says, Hey, Mike wanted to be on the radar. 
what would you like to track of us, you know, in our journey between 1 million and 2 million? I know we're not ready yet to go through, you know, a formal process, a due diligence process. Um, but, you know, I'd like to be able to, you know, prove to you what we can do in the path between, you know, being out of your investment thesis to moving into your investment thesis. And I'd like to know from you some of the things that would be important to you, you know, a year from now so that we can set ourselves up for success. And, um, you know, I do, I do a lot of um, advisory work for, for startups uh, as well. And that's one of the pieces of advice that I, that I give and something I, I certainly would really respect and appreciate um, with someone approaching me for, for financing. Excellent. Thanks for that. It's, um, you know, it's those tidbits, which I think can go a long way. I've also, you know, heard a number of times, and I think it's great advice that when you're closing your A, you should start raising your B. Or, you know, vice versa, whatever, not vice versa, excuse me, uh, you know, whatever stage you're in, you have to start early. And it is, it is that kind of conversation. Listen, I know I'm out of your wheelhouse right now, but how can I communicate with you for the future of where I see mm -hmm. us going? Because we may, mm -hmm. we may be a good fit. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, moving on here to, um, to the future of Active Impact, what's most exciting you now and, and where do you see this in the future? Well, so exciting for us was just getting to this close, right? We're a first-time fund, and so to, to raise $10 million for a first-time fund, uh, you know, with a first-time fund manager and sort of a, you know, a bit of a different thesis around impact, I mean, we were, we were over the moon, and, and so um, you know, <laughs> take, take a moment to celebrate because we, we, we just closed the fund uh, a couple weeks ago, and so took the team and spouses out for dinner and, you know, take that, that one second to take a breath and congratulations then, by the way. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. So, so that was a big deal for us. Um, that was where we set our goal and our intention and, and we get it. Um, but, but what was compelling us to do this from the get go was that we, we really wanted to make as big of a difference as we can. And I think we'll have to continue to learn what are the ways that we can really make a big difference and you know we understand 10 million dollars in, in sort of from a from a global standpoint and with big you know complex global issues it's it's a drop in the bucket and we you know it'd be pretty hard for us to to move the needle but what we get excited by is, is sort of all the ripple effects right like all the people we have conversations with all the people who kind of scratch their heads and say so why did you choose to do that or why should i consider doing that or you know, any of the competitors that we inspire to move into the space, which, you know, I'd be happy to see if they're coming into the, into the impact ecosystem. Um, and then, um, and then the more, you know, the more direct way that we can um, continue to grow our, our impact and our influence is just by raising subsequent funds. And so, you know, our, um, our first priority is to, to make this fund uh, a winner and uh, to pick some great companies and, and get some good results. Um, but on the heels of that, if we can, if we can, you know, prove to people that we've got a, a good formula here and a good team, um, then the next fund we would raise would be, would be larger, you know, maybe, maybe $50 million. Um, and uh, if we do well with a $50 million fund, then we would probably raise, you know, a larger one after that. And so, you know, the sky's the limit, and, and, and 
the ambition from from our standpoint is is kind of tied into our mission, which is is just to move as much money and as much talent as possible over to social ventures. And so we do that through you know speaking and thought leadership. We do it through our fund. We do it through you know just contributing to the ecosystem um, in in any way that we can. Um, but uh, some of the issues that we care the most about, they we don't have a lot of time. And so you know I. Um, Yes, I have a financial ambition. I, you know, I have, I have a family that I need to, you know, provide, uh, you know, some economic, you know, security for. Um, and I, I use the economics as a, as a measuring stick, as a competitive guide to, you know, just see whether I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living up to a standard that I'm happy with and, and being a competitor. Um, but the, the, the more burning issue, because um, you know, I, I can I can compete on financial rewards for the next fifty years, and I can accumulate wealth for the next fifty years. Um, the more burning issue for me is the social environmental issues, where we don't know how long we have left. And so that's what drives my urgency around you know growth of the funds and growth of the companies we have in the fund and growth of you know introduction of new investors into this space and. Um, so, so yeah, I think you can expect us to be, you know, really relentless and really impatient to to try to scale up our concept as quickly as we can. Well, that's excellent, and and it's it's already validated by some other uh, some other funds out there. And like to the point you made at the at the start of the interview here, that we're seeing uh, or you're seeing, and and I'm sure we'll all see more and more money move into uh, into impact investments. So uh, I think you're on a good track there. To wrap this up, is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the CEOs or, or even the investors who are looking at uh, the work you're doing? What, what would be a final thought for them? I guess like my final thought on, on the impact would just be, you know, I, I've only been alive for a little over 40 years, so super short period of time in, in all of human history on this planet. But in the period of time that I've been alive, um, there's been a doubling of the, of the population on Earth. And, um, you know, World Wildlife put out a report last year that showed a 60% decline in, um, in, in population sizes. Of, uh, of of all other species, so sort of the biomass has reduced by sixty percent in that same period of time, just in the last four uh, decades. And then you've got sort of these pretty scary reports kind of coming in terms of how important it is that we we keep the uh, warming of the planet to no greater than than a degree and a half, and and um, you know fairly damning reports there. And so. Look, I, I look at this stuff kind of combined. And I think um, it happens on such a macro scale that I, I think a lot of people kind of go to not necessarily a place of uh, complacency, but a place of I wish I could help, but I don't think that anything I would do would make a difference. And, um, and I just think that that is so dangerous because you know, co- collectively, if if all of us sort of took uh, made a, made a few uh, uh, different choices, 
it would make an enormous difference. And, um, and, and just what we have at stake is, is, uh, is, is, is obviously incredibly important. And then as we move that over to the financial side, I guess my main message would be that there doesn't have to be a trade-off. You know, I think that a lot of people viewed um, this space as kind of filled with a lot of do-gooders, um, tree huggers, and granola eaters, or whatever you want to call it. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, you, I, I'm. I was thinking there. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's there's a there's a brush that this space has been painted with, and there's been sort of extremists and activists, and and um, you know, uh, and then there have been people who have moved into the space that were people that were not, um, you know, at the, at the top of their game. We're not sort of the most, uh, you know, the, the, the highest degrees of talent or, or, or what have you. And, and, you know, certain organizations where the bar was lower. Um, there's an opportunity, I think, for us to, to have it all, right? So, um, if you are an employee, um, I won't even say employee. If you are a talent, you are someone who has skills that are important and that are marketable and that are in demand, you have a choice on where you work. I mean, that's just that's the beautiful thing about having in-demand skills is you get to choose where you work. And so, you know, the first uh, view I would have is choose where you work carefully. And it doesn't have to be working for an employer. It could be a contractor. Uh, it could be through the gig economy, or it could be that you're starting your own business. But if you have the skills, you get to sort of apply those skills work to the companies that you want to see flourish. And the companies that get the best talent are the companies that are that are going to win. Um, so pick wisely, and uh, you know, go for go work for a company that that, that uh, is purpose driven would be my my hope. And I and and by doing that. There's no compromise. You get to work at a company that's inspiring for you and that you go home and you know that you're not just earning a paycheck. You, you're contributing to, to something else, a greater, greater good. Um, if you have money, then same thing. You can move money into this category, whether it be on, you know, out of my world, but, you know, public equities and public debt and green bonds and ETFs that are screening for, you know, SRI and ESG and so on. And they will perform alongside the market. And so um, there's no there's no consequence there. Or if you're more interested in private investments in sort of the venture capital category or private equity category or, or direct investments in small businesses, again, um, you can choose where your dollars go. And so you can you can put the request out there to say, listen, I would like this level of economic return and I would like to park my money in companies that are you know, solving these particular issues. And, um, and that doesn't have to come with financial compromise if you can choose correctly. So sorry, I don't want to finish off being preachy. I guess I'm just saying, um, I think they're uh, on, on, on the talent side and on the money side, um, there are lots of ways to make money. So why not make money doing things you feel proud of and good about? And there are lots of ways to you know, be gainfully employed. And so why not be gainfully employed in something that inspires you in a way other than just making a paycheck? I hear you on that and, and really appreciate it. And uh, I think it's, this has been insightful. Uh, what I like about it is there's definitely a, I think there's an avenue and a profitable avenue to be socially uh, aware or conscious in the, in the investments we make. And it's not just about, uh, 
you know, the granola eaters of the world. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is, this has been enlightening and insightful. So Mike, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. And congrats on the fund and, uh, all the best with it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the insider's guide to finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.